Greetings. Welcome to White's Run Baptist Church. Today we're going to talk about the Nunc Dimittis. The Nunc Dimittis. And if we look in the Latin Vulgate, the Clementine Vulgate, the Latin translation of the New Testament, when we come to Luke chapter 2, and Simeon gets to his song in Luke chapter 2, the first two words would be Nunc Dimittis. And so this short song is known as the Nunc Dimittis. And what we're talking about is we're talking about three hymns that are found by the people of God in the birth narrative of the book of Luke. And this is the third one we're going to look at. The other two we have uh, recorded already and released. And, and those, of course, are the Magnificat, which is by Mary when she encounters Elizabeth and, and has a great celebration there. The second is called the Benedictus, and it is by Zechariah on the occasion of the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And the third we come to today, which is a man named Simeon, who sees the Christ child in the temple on the day of his dedication. And so this is a powerful way to see several things. These answer questions for us, like what were the expectations of the faithful people of God concerning the coming of the Messiah at his actual coming? And what is the importance, uh, what is the interpretation, their interpretation of events right there at ground zero in the first century when Jesus came? See, these songs and these revelations in the birth narratives are like the book of Acts, how it gives us a glimpse of the early church free from our modern uh, distractions, our modern traditions and things that we've added to it. We can always look back at the book of Acts, see what the early church was. These three songs give us the opportunity to find the perspective of God's faithful people inspired by the Holy Spirit at the very time of the unfolding of the birth surrounding uh, or unfolding the, the events of the surrounding of Jesus' birth. These are messages direct from God concerning the very meaning and the nature of the coming of Jesus. And so, as many promise to show you the meaning of Christmas, indeed, we can open the scriptures and we can find God's take on the issue. Well, in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, what we're going to see is we're going to see Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple, faithfully obeying the laws concerning having a child, especially firstborn son, and then they're going to be joined. They're going to be met by a man named Simeon, and he's going to uh, prophesy over the child, praise God over the child, and then he's going to say some very specific things to them, and that's what we'll take a look at today. So join me in Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 21. It says, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so at eight days they visit, they have Jesus circumcised, which was a traditional time to name him. Then it goes on, and this would be at 40 days after his birth, when this occurs. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, it's, it's our desire that you would be known through this reading of your word today, that Lord, you would be glorified in it, that you would use this time and this word and its interpretation, Lord, to strengthen, to encourage, to help your people that you would also use it to draw people to yourself and to the Lord Jesus for salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you, Lord, for this great word, and we ask you to do your work by your spirit this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there we have a, a fairly simple account and a, a very endearing account. I think the more that you look over it, the more you'll find details in it that are really moving when they're understood. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to make just some very basic observations. I want to, uh, I want you to see that Jesus was fulfilling the law of Moses. This was necessary as he was going to be the Lamb of God. It was in the Israelite law to have the children circumcised on the eighth day. It was in the Israelite law that they go through this purification ritual in which they come to the temple and make an offering. And you'll notice that there were uh, possibilities on the offering. They could offer a lamb or they could offer two turtle doves. And two turtle doves would be, or two young pigeons, as it could be translated, would be the offering for the poor among us. And indeed, Mary and Joseph offered that one. And it was going to be necessary for him to obey these laws because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill them. And we know that Jesus did not sin all the days of his life and that this was necessary because Jesus was the Lamb of God who ultimately would be offered as a sacrifice once for all for the sins of many. And therefore, he had to be perfect. He had to be without sin. And isn't it amazing that Mary and Joseph had the honor of serving the Lord in this very special way? Because at eight days old and at 40 days old, the young Jesus is not going to go to the temple himself. God chose faithful parents, a faithful mother and a faithful earthly father that would take him and do according to the law. And so they do this. And there's an application here for parents. If you really think about this from a devotional perspective for you parents out there, uh, I have to ask the question, are we setting our children up for success? Before they're old enough to do for themselves, are we preparing them for a life of faithfulness? Are we ourselves faithful in the things of God rather than hoping they get on the right path and, and stay on the right path? Are we ourselves 
ensuring that we are on the right path and able to go ahead of them by example. That's one application to consider here, but that's not going to be our emphasis today. When we get to Simeon here, the one who sings a song, and indeed those verses that you saw that were formatted like poetry that that come up here starting in verse 29, it's formatted that way to show us that this indeed is poetry and was likely sung. The Israelites were a singing people, and it's very often overlooked that these people, many like Simeon and Anna and others that we've seen, were seeking for the Messiah. They were expecting him. If we take a look at the description of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. These are people acting faithfully as if these things matter, that they're more than traditions, they're obeying, as it were, the Lord himself. This is the condition of someone that is waiting expectantly. And in the things that Zechariah says in his song, which we talked about last time, very obviously show their understanding of the scriptures, their expectations concerning the Messiah. And then along comes Simeon, and then after him would come one named Anna, who also meets him in the temple on the same day. All very important we see. And this is not something just related to the birth narratives. If we think of Joseph of Arimathea, we find a man who was willing to take Jesus down from the cross. We're going to talk about later that that's very significant because that then became very public because he went in and he asked for the body of Jesus that he could make a proper burial. And so we have these faithful people and their example of obedience and, and open uh, declaration of who Jesus the Messiah really is and what he came to accomplish. They were waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel, is what it says about him here. Uh, he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that is a very common and traditional Jewish prayer. May I see the consolation of Israel. And so this is a powerful thing that we see this man waiting for the Lord. Now, I want to take a look at the idea of praise here. This hymn is mainly a hymn of praise. It's called the Nunc Dimittis, which is the uh, first two words of it, which we would be now let depart when we saw that he was saying, now let your servant depart in peace in this first uh, verse of his song in 29. And this is how it's introduced. The verse right before this says he blessed God and then said these things. And we're often drawn to the idea of, okay, what is a blessing and what is a blessing in the Bible? And generally a blessing in the Bible is a greater blesses a lesser. Like Jacob at nearing his death blesses his sons. We have uh, Melchizedek pronounces a blessing upon Abraham in the book of Genesis. And the book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of that because that shows that Melchizedek's priesthood was higher than the priesthood that I you know, subsequently came from the line of Abraham. Usually it's the blessing of the the higher, blessing the lower. But here we have Simeon blessed the Lord. That doesn't mean he's above the Lord. This word can simply mean praised. And this is exactly what he did. He praised the Lord. He said good things about him, which is what the word 
literally means. We get our word eulogy from this, and it means to speak well of or to to speak good things. And so here he speaks good things over the Lord. This is a hymn then of praise, and it sounds a lot like many of the Psalms. And in fact, much of what he says here comes from Isaiah, which most of that is poetry and also the Psalms. Now he praises the Lord essentially and and primarily for two things. Number one, for keeping promises. He praises the Lord for keeping his promises, um, for keeping his promise to bring Messiah and for his great privilege of seeing this happen. Now I say that we can praise God if indeed we even have breath. And in fact, there's a psalm that says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Why? Because even if we just live, if our existence in our present is so miserable that all we can possibly say is check ourselves for a pulse, check ourselves for respiration and say, well, there's one thing I'm living. The reason why we can praise God for that is that is an evidence of his mercy and his grace because human lives were forfeit in the garden with our ancestor Adam. As soon as he sinned, there was a a death penalty upon mankind, which we all carry forth, according to Romans 5, the guilt of Adam himself. So he is praising God for keeping promises, keeping promises. Let's take a look in the scriptures at that for a moment. Think about the promises of God to bring salvation. They go all the way back to the very fall, to at the very moment that Adam and Eve uh, sinned against God, that God began to announce and reveal his plan to deal with it. And we have in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, we spoke about this recently in the sermon, talking about the importance of the idea that this is the offspring of the woman. He was not born of Adam, did not inherit that sin, and yet he is going to be born specially of a woman, that is Jesus, who did not have an earthly father involved with his conception. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit in Mary. Now, we can praise him if indeed we are breathing, because that is an experience of his grace and mercy. But even more so, we can praise him because he is fulfilling these great promises. Look in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God says to Abraham, he says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If we go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find that the Lord makes a covenant with King David, that one would sit on his throne and rule forever. And the the Psalms and the prophets develop this theme, this idea of this one to come in the the rule of David and in the line of David to rule upon earth, that he would rule in righteousness and justice forever. And then we get to the promise of the new covenant, for example, in Jeremiah 31, where the promise is that he's going to make a new covenant. It's going to be very different from the covenant that was broken by the nation Israel. He says, and this covenant, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. He's going to do something utterly different. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within his people. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
in the new covenant, each and every person that is in the new covenant is by definition someone that knows God. They've been sealed with the Holy Spirit because of the grace of God through their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a wonderful thing that he is praising God for keeping promises. And we stand in salvation because of God keeping his promises. He is also praising God for salvation itself. And this is the center of what he says. As he says, uh, my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared in the presence of all the peoples. It's very interesting. He praises for salvation. And he says then, you can let me go now. <laughs> is essentially what he says. Because in verse 30, he says, um, or in verse 29, you, now you are letting your, your servant depart in peace or let your servant now depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. He uses this word depart, which is very interesting because this word does not mean to die. It has a broad range of meaning and some of the examples of what it means are very profound that he would use this of himself with regard to his earthly death, with regard to passing on from this place. This represents the releasing of a prisoner. This word could be used for the untying of a ship and setting sail. This word could be used of the taking down of a tent. And this word could be used for the unyoking of a beast of burden. And it's as if free of the burdens of this life, comfortable with his next step, this is the position that Simeon has and the position of all believers. Trusting God, the next life is better. Trusting God that it does not end with death, that annihilation is not a concept known to God. He desired nothing more, however, than to see the Messiah come. And this was exactly what was promised by God. If we look in uh, 2.29, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What was the word? Well, back here in verse 26. We saw it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he praises God for this salvation that has now come, for this personal promise that he would see the salvation of the Lord. But praise characterizes what he has said, but then he goes on and speaks more. And that is really concerned with prophecy. There are two senses in which the word prophecy or the verb to prophesy is used in the Bible and in the one sense to prophesy in the Bible in the New Testament in a technical sense was a spiritual gift that seems to have gone away with the apostolic era as it was replaced in its authority by the scripture itself. And as you know, by the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation, there is a a warning on the end of the book of Revelation, don't add to or take away from the words of this prophecy. And many of us believe that encompasses the whole work of the Bible, that nothing more needs to be said from God, nothing new, nothing in addition to what is already there. Instead, what we do is we say and speak from the Bible over and over again. It is an inexhaustible wealth of wisdom and truth. Now, the broad idea of prophecy, the words simply mean to speak. And in the context of the scripture, then it means to speak for God. And so in this very broad sense of the just literal meaning of the words 
prophecy and to prophesy, it is very simply speaking for God. And that can be as simple as opening up your Bible and reading it to somebody. That is prophesying in that broad kind of sense. Not only that, but when we speak of the content of the Bible in truth, then we are speaking for God. We are speaking for what he says. And in that sense, in that broad sense, we are prophesying. But be careful how you use the word, because some people take it to mean strictly this great spiritual gift, as if you have God has touched you, especially among others, that like the eyes are going to roll back in your head, and you're going to utter words straight from God. Um, we don't see that active today. What we see active is the word of God, the living word, that is sharper, it says, than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit even, something we cannot do. So what Simeon does, practically every phrase of what he says in a, is an allusion to the Old Testament. In other words, what he is saying is nothing new in the very strict sense. Everything that he says, except for the part that's very personal, that it was revealed to him that he would see that, our Old Testament illusions. Let me show you in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Well, this is spoken of in Isaiah. The salvation that God would bring in the person of the Messiah is something that would be visible to people. It says, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the earth, ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is something that would be seen by many. And indeed it is seen by many. He goes on to say uh, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, that this would be present to all people. You can see uh, right back here in Isaiah 52.10 that we just looked at, that this was made plain to everyone, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that his existence upon this earth is common knowledge. This is something that was revealed to the entire earth. And indeed, Isaiah says this would be uh, for all the peoples. And look at the commands of Jesus to the disciples, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So indeed, it was a command of Jesus that this would be proclaimed to all. Psalm 98, 2 says, the Lord has made known his salvation, has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. This is the goodness of God. He did not do this in a corner. He did not hide this. Even every time we write the year, we are acknowledging that he has sent his salvation. And indeed, most of the nations in the world now use the contemporary numbering of years. And even though they've tried to rename it uh, as before common era and the common era, um, we know that the years refer to before Christ and Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, he goes on to say in verse 32, that this would go to the Gentiles is a promise all the way back, as we saw in Genesis 12, given to Abraham. Abraham, the very beginning of the nation of Israel, was promised, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. And it has developed in the book of Isaiah tremendously. Isaiah 42, 6, I'm the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will make you as a covenant for the people, a light for 
the nations. It was obvious what God was going to do. It says here in 49.6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Then it goes on and on. We already saw 52.10. Here's Isaiah 60 verse 3. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightest of your rising. This indeed is what Jesus Christ is saying when he comes and he says, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is what has been made known. This is what the church was preaching in the book of Acts. We have two examples there, that he was a light for the nations. And glory, it says in verse 32, for your people Israel. So there's a little parallelism in verse 32. He was a light for revelation to the Gentiles and in parallel, and for glory to your people Israel. And indeed, everyone knows the name Israel. Everyone knows that Israel exists. They know that Israel for a long time did not exist, but now they're back in their land, reestablished as a nation, and everyone knows them. Why? Why does everyone seem to pay attention to this? Why does Israel, seemingly small and insignificant country, constantly make your evening news? And how can it be in an existence in the midst of so many enemies? It is because it is through that nation that Jesus brought, that, that the Lord brought Jesus Christ the Messiah, to his people as a light for all the nations. And it brings glory to the nation Israel. He says, by myself I have sworn from my mouth he has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, says the Lord, saying that all of them are going to turn toward the Lord, the God of Israel, and him alone. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, which is another word for the area of Jerusalem. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And so this is for glory to the people of Israel. What he does here in these verses is these are all allusions to things that were already well known in the Old Testament, themes that were alive and living through the writings of the people of Israel. And this is what the faithful of God always do. They hide the word of God in their hearts. They internalize it. They study it. They go over it again and again and memorize it and read it so that when the occasion presents itself and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they overflow with praise and prophesying to God. Now, after the song, Simeon continues to prophesy, and this time, inspired by the Spirit, he brings some implications of what God is doing. And this is very interesting. So we have, first of all, Old Testament delusions, which, which we talked about in the verses of the song. And then afterwards, we're going to see that there are conceptual implications. These conceptual implications uh, are very important. One thing that became obvious from what the Old Testament presents to us is not all will believe and follow Messiah. Yet, Messiah is going to rule, as it says, with a rod of iron over all nations. Therefore, some will rise, as Simeon says, the faithful, and some will fall, the unfaithful, the disobedient. So that's exactly what he says. He blesses Mary. Uh, he blessed them both, and then, or all three, and then says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. 
This was a concept, of course, in the Old Testament that when this Messiah would come, it would mean those that are loyal to him, that are waiting for him, that are looking for him, that are loyal to God, will indeed be lifted up, will be vindicated, will have justice done for them, but the enemies of God indeed will be put away. Look at this, as it says here in Isaiah, he will become a sanctuary, which is a good thing, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, which are bad things, to both houses of Israel, that is Israel and Judah after the split, and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, this coming Messiah is going to be something good for people, or something bad for people. And this is precisely what Jesus came. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And and you might be thinking to yourself, no, wait a minute, we're talking Christmas here. What about peace on earth, goodwill toward men? That should be translated as peace on earth, good men, goodwill toward those with whom God is pleased. And indeed, this is what we see throughout the scriptures, this idea that it's the rising and the falling of many. This is why Jesus said, the humble will be exalted, that means lifted up, and those that exalt themselves will be humbled. There's a great reversal coming, and indeed we see this through the New Testament. Not only is there a great reversal coming, but this Jesus that comes is not only for the fallen rising of many in Israel, but for a sign that is opposed so he'll be actively opposed. There won't be just, you know, some people ambivalent or some people, you know, simply neutral on the issue. And maybe maybe God will just make a place for them over there. They can go live over there and, and we'll have the faithful over here. We'll have the unfaithful over there and we'll leave them alone because they don't really care. No, they do care. In fact, they rage against God. Uh, it's it, it, God made it clear, or the Old Testament made it clear that God is always opposed, even opposed by a majority of people. I think about the Israelites who were brought out of the promised land and by all these great miracles and signs and wonders that the Lord did uh, in the, the midst of the people of Egypt and great wealth being transferred to the people of Israel as they're brought out of the, the nation Egypt, out of their slavery. They're brought out into the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law from God. He's up there like 40 days. The people... Uh, the, the rest of the people, what do they do? They make an idol. Even Aaron was involved in this. Aaron, the high priest. And they make a golden calf, which was something they had worshipped back there in Egypt. And they begin to worship, and Moses comes down and finds a place a mess. Uh, this is how it is all through the Bible. It's so frustrating to read the Old Testament because you're like, what is wrong with these people? But then the Bible suddenly shimmers, turns into a mirror, and reveals me. And when I look into the scriptures, I see it's speaking of me. This is me. I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel most of the time. And I see it speaking of human nature. Twelve spies were sent in by the Israelites into the promised land to see what it was like. They came back and after centuries, literally centuries of God promising to give them the land and showing himself through all these great signs and wonders, ten of the twelve say, no, we dare not go in. It's dangerous. Two of the twelve gave a good report, Joshua and Caleb, and guess which two of all the people there that day actually went into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, and the next generation of people. It's no stretch, therefore, that Messiah would be opposed, and opposed even by a majority, 
by a majority. Listen to Psalm 2 and how it speaks of the Messiah. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word is Messiah. Saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so the nations that literally plot against want to rule out, want to cast away the idea of God. Look at what it says in Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is so profound and so clear about what Jesus' crucifixion was like and the things that Jesus would do that Jesus quotes the first line of it from the cross. In drawing our attention, drawing our minds to this whole thing, when he says, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of the psalm. Look what it says in Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8 that we have here in front of us. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And they say, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And these are the exact taunts that were hurled at Jesus while he was on the cross. And so to this very day, Jesus is a sign that is opposed even by a majority of people, even by a majority of those who claim to be Christian and attend a church, even by each and every one of us, in that we seem to do the bare minimum that God asks of us for our faith. With Messiah, The final judgment is also involved. And think about the law itself. What book of the Bible do you suppose is the one that says you must love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength? It's the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's that one we never like to read because all it is is a bunch of rules concerning the people of Israel. And yet, at least four times in the book of Deuteronomy, and I forgot to count them for your benefit. I know it's at least four times in the book of Deuteronomy that that book plainly says, despite all these laws, it's really about your heart. Get your heart right with God and love God with all your heart. This is a powerful truth that that book so full of law right before, given to the people, right before they went into the promised land, is so full of the concept of this is really about the heart. And then that's what God comes along and says about the new covenant. It's about the heart. I'm going to put my law in their heart and they'll all know me. And we know that according to the teaching of Jesus, it is from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And by implication of what he says, the hands act and the feet move according to what's in our heart to do. According to our heart, so we will act. And if our heart is for God, we will act righteously. That's why the Bible can confidently say, you know, how can you expect to go to heaven? And and no one, you know, no liars or no idolaters or none of these people are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. How can it say that? Does that mean we have to behave perfectly? No, that means it's about our heart. And if we are actively and continually involved in those kinds of sins, it's very clear where our heart is. Our heart is not with the Lord. Our heart is with our own sin. And you notice what he says here. He says that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many 
and for a sign it is opposed, and let's skip the parenthetical just for the moment, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the Lord that knows the thoughts of our hearts. You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. It's a command to Solomon. You have to serve God with a whole heart. Look at Psalm 139 and how it describes this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That is a very daring prayer. For when we ask God to know our hearts, we're, we're asking him to know it all the secret things, the things we don't say, even the things we don't act upon that are there in our hearts, the things we have against others, the things we have against him. That That is what this is saying, to reveal the heart. And look what he says about the word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is his warning to a, one of the churches he writes to in the book of Revelation. Um, and, and it speaks of a, a heretic among them, a uh, disruptive force within the church. And he says, I will strike her children dead. That, that means the, descent, the uh, disciples of this person. And, and with her, who commit adultery with her, and throw her into great tribulation, lest they repent of her works. And so this is a... This is powerfully important that this is about the heart, that this is something he says here, um, and the churches know who I am, that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. We cannot hide from him. Leaders try to execute Jesus in secret. When you read the Gospels, you find out, okay, let's arrest him, but make sure not to do it on the holiday. And when was Jesus crucified? on the Passover, exactly when they didn't want to do it, because these things were really out of their hands. And when did they come to arrest him? They didn't arrest him when he was publicly teaching in the temple, and he challenges them on that exact point. They go and arrest him under the cover of darkness at night over on the Mount of Olives outside of town. And then many of the people that believed him were afraid to say anything, and they kind of believed him and followed him secretly. But ultimately, we can't continue to follow him secretly. Circumstances will press us to reveal our loyalty or our disloyalty to Christ. It will always come forward. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were two leaders among the people of Israel, among the people of the Jews at the time of Jesus. And they believed Jesus, but they didn't say anything publicly until Jesus was crucified. And then they very publicly went and requested to have his body that they could give him a proper burial. And they did just that. They could not have hidden what they did. And it's been remembered by God in his word to this day. Peter and others publicly preached and opposed that same leadership core that crucified Jesus. Important truths that he comes for the fall and rising of many, that the contents of a person's heart will be revealed. And so filled with the Holy Spirit, the thinking believer can come to the conclusions that our brother Simeon came to, that these things that the coming Messiah means 
that there's going to be a fall and rising of many. These are also Old Testament concepts. The coming of him means that he will be opposed. The coming of him means that many hearts will be revealed because God is the one who reads the hearts. And Simeon has formulated this, guided by the Spirit. He pronounces these things to Joseph and Mary. And then finally, a personal implication for Mary herself. Verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Well, that reminds us of John 19.25, when we have shown to us who is standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus is crucified. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, at least three Marys there, one of which, of course, is his mother. And Jesus tenderly gives the care of his mother to the apostle John. And you might say about that last one there, that this personal uh, aside to Mary, by the way, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You'll say, how's that encouraging? Why would he say this? Because this is a, a happy occasion. They've just had their first son. They brought him. They've dedicated him. They're keeping the law. He says all these wonderful things and praises God about the salvation he's brought and everything else. And then he gets here to 35. And this is like, you know, when somebody's uh, giving giving the eulogy at a funeral and you're like, boy, they should have sat down five minutes into this because it was good until then and then they went and said too much or, or at a wedding and the best man gets up and he says some nice things at first and then he just goes too far. And here's Simeon. He says all these wonderful things and then all of a sudden says to her, sword will pierce through your own soul also. And you might think that's unkind, but it's not. This is a kindness. This is an encouragement to her. Why? Because when we know a thing will be difficult, we prepare our hearts for it. And he is preparing Mary. Someday this is going to hurt very, very bad. And I would say, standing at the foot of the cross that day, she remembered his words. And as Luke came along to gather her eyewitness account for the recording in his gospel, she remembered, and she said so. But then she was filled with great joy at the resurrection, for she saw him resurrected along with the other disciples. And indeed, she had the opportunity to enjoy that. As God unfolds his plans, his people are there to praise him and to prophesy, to bring forth his word to others. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he will prompt us to see and to understand and to state what is happening. And this is all very glorifying to God and encouraging to his people. Look how his words elevated our thoughts toward him today and how much more we think of God right now than we did a few minutes ago because of what he is doing and what he has done. And consider how much all this encouraged Mary and Joseph. The greatest encouragement for a believer is other believers. This is the people through whom God brings great encouragement. And you think about Mary and Joseph's situation. Yeah, they had a revelation by angels, but then they're immediately encouraged by Elizabeth in the words of Zechariah. And then they're encouraged here in the temple by Simeon and by Anna. And then they're encouraged by the Magi who come and worship the child Jesus. They receive this. God carries them along. God cares for them to remind them this is something special. This is something quite different. And this is a wonderful thing. 
This is the context through which God encourages us and ministers to us, the people, the faithful of God. And it saddens me to think about how many believers are stunted in their growth and discouraged because they do not have fellowship with other believers. The Proverbs say that iron sharpens iron, and indeed we know that to be true, but how many are not making themselves available for sharpening with others? How many are self-deceived that don't truly know the truth because they're cut off from the true church, from the true faithful of God? What's well, my encourage, why my encouragements today are centered around these things. My encouragements are basically this. Uh, first of all, I would encourage you to praise the Lord. Let him and others know how you feel about what he is doing. This is what this is. And if you read through the Psalms, this is all this is, is the people of God praising him. The longest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms, and it is primarily the praises of his people toward him. And so there's a model for you. Go back and read the book of Psalms and and pray them aloud to God. Because indeed, he is keeping promises and he is as certain as Jesus came the first time, he'll come the second. As certain as he brought the people out of Israel and made them a place and gave them the promised land, he is going to bring final judgment, separate the sheep from the goats, see to it that every wrong thing is turned right. He is going to wipe away every tear. He is going to make a new heaven, a new earth. Praise him for these things, whether they have happened or not. Let him and others know how you feel about what he is doing. For if indeed he has saved you, you have but life itself to praise him. And so indeed, let your praises fly. Praise him at every opportunity that you have. When somebody talks about Christmas, you can just say, Oh, how I love Christmas. And it's not the food or the presents or the the visitation with family. It is thinking about Jesus. He is so great. He came to save. And this is how you can praise God as simply as this, as the occasion permits it, the goodness of God. And you can always say something positive about God, even in the worst of circumstances, even in the very lowest of moments, you can praise God to somebody saying, God did not intend for it to be this way, and he is going to make this right one day. And indeed, he will. Praise the Lord and let people know. How do you do this? Fill yourself with the word of God until you overflow with it. This is how it will become natural to praise him, natural to turn the conversation to the things of God, to the high things that lift us up, that encourage us, that bring our eyes upon him. Fill yourself with the word of God until you overflow. And thirdly, seek opportunities to encourage and also to be encouraged. It's very important you gather with the people of God whenever and however you can. You gather with them. If you meet faithful people online, if for some reason you're separated from your church or or even worse, your church isn't meeting uh, because the, the world has gone crazy over COVID and indeed there's some real danger there, but, but many churches are just falling right in line with what's going on. Go ahead and get with somebody somehow. Do it across Zoom if you have to or whatever content uh, carrier you can use. However you can connect with someone, connect. 
seeking opportunities to both encourage them and to be encouraged. And so that's my word to you today that, that comes from the account of Simeon. This is a great thing that we have, that we have this opportunity to be Simeon to many because many people are carrying burdens of the Lord. Many people are, are working hard and sacrificing and trying to follow the Lord in faithfulness. And they need your word of encouragement. They need to just hear you praise God. They need to just know someone else recognizes what God is doing in the world. Go give it to them and praise him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day and we thank you, Lord, for making yourself known. We ask you, Lord, to continue to make yourself known in profound and beautiful ways as you always have done. Receive this day our praises and encourage us to encourage others. And Lord, help us to be aware of those opportunities and to take advantage of them so that you can be known and glorified throughout all the nations of the earth. We thank you, Lord, for your great attention to us this day. We thank you for your spirit, which guides us into all truth. And Lord, I pray today has been a benefit for many. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I invite you to contact me if you have any questions, concerns, even, even things you disagree with. We'll discuss those things. You can email me personally at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. You can learn more about our church at whitesrun.org, and you can find a great number of other sermons there, in addition to sermon notes that go along with this, where you can follow many of the cross-references I've provided. I didn't hit, but maybe 20% of the cross-references that are mentioned on my notes. So it's important you have that opportunity to, to strengthen yourself. So until next time, I invite you to... Uh, to look for the Messiah, look for what he's doing in this world, and know him and glorify him. God bless you.